Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Thank you, all the music this morning. What a delight to be able to hear that and sing that. Thank you for your good singing as well. Just again, I trust that you'll really take this uh, Advent reading uh, plan and uh, use it, uh, use it as a family, use it as a couple, uh, use it with your little ones, and, uh, but draw near to God in that way. I think it'll be a very meaning, meaning, meaningful time for you as well. All right. So this Advent season, we're focusing on the little things of Christmas. And I keep thinking, I, I hear Johnny Mathis sing, you know, what we need is a little Christmas right this very minute, you know, haul out the holly, you know, all this kind of stuff like we sing on the uh, part of the Christmas canon every year. And uh, I, I was thinking about that song and thinking about how in, in the Christmas story, there are all these little things that make a difference and allow God's love to be revealed to us in such a big, such a huge way as well. Now, the song that Johnny Mathis and other people are singing comes from a Broadway musical. Uh, Angela Lansbury was the the star of it back in the mid-60s, and she portrays a very wealthy uh, lady who has lost all her fortune in the stock market crash of 1929, and she's so depressed and she's so discouraged that the people around her, they're all moping around, and she says, you know what we need to cheer ourselves up? We need a little Christmas right this very minute. And so they, they start pulling out all the stuff, all the, the decorations, the tree, the, the, the wreaths, the garland, the lights. They, hand, they pull out all this stuff and they start singing about Christmas carols and start singing about the decorations and all that. And it's all designed to try to cheer themselves up. And I think that there's a, you know, a lot of truth in that because we do go through very dark and discouraging times and Christmas is a way that God does speak to us and challenge us and reminds us that even in the midst of all this discouragement and darkness, there's still light, there's still love, there's hope because of Christmas, because of what Christ has done in his coming to earth to rescue us and save us. So I kind of want to play on those words, we need a little Christmas, but I want us to also think about that we really needed all the little things of Christmas, the little people, the little places, the tiny circumstances, the little situations and events and choices that people made, otherwise there wouldn't be Christmas. You know, it was little people like Mary and Joseph who were just common folk, poor folk, who said to God, yes, we love you and we'll obey you whatever the risks, whatever the hazards that are involved. There was this little town that we're going to talk about today, a little village so small it's not even on the maps of ancient Israel, not even counted in the census of towns and surveys, Uh, forgotten, insignificant, and yet God said, I'll use Bethlehem. This will be the birthplace of my new greater David king. I'll do that. Uh, There were the little shepherds who had such a low status. Oh, they had a job, the things were important, but they were were just, in in culture and in society, they were considered insignificant. In fact, people didn't even really pay attention to them, didn't even want to hang around them because they were considered filthy, they were unclean. There was a little word that summarized everything that there is about God's power and glory, this little word, but it became flesh. 
and lived among us. And then, of course, the climax of it all. God makes an appearance, becomes a human being, and how does he arrive? As a little baby, a little infant. And if anything, this Christmas season, this season of Advent, as we slow down and think about what God did in sending his son to be our Savior, he used all these little things, little people, little circumstances in order to reveal his love and grace in such a powerful, huge way that changes our lives and changes our world as well. I think we can kind of leverage this and think about it personally. We can receive it gratefully and thank God for his gift of mercy through the little things of the Christmas story. But I think it also gives us hope because today we're talking about hope. It gives us hope and it reminds us that God can use people like me and like you in the little circumstances, in the little places that we find ourselves as well. Now, it's interesting to me <clears throat> that in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's account of the life of Christ, the very first book of the New Testament, as he starts telling about the arrival <clears throat> of these three wise men, and we're not, I need to back off and say, we're not exactly sure how many. I say three because of the number of gifts, they, types of gifts they brought. It might have been a whole large contingent entourage of people that came to visit. But these foreigners came to Israel traveling hundreds of miles. They're looking for the, the, the newborn king of the Jews. And when they ask for where this king has been born, uh, king Herod, who is entertaining them and welcoming them as these foreign dignitaries, he's flabbergasted, and though he's the king of the Jews, he has no idea where the future greater king of Israel is supposed to be born. He has no clue, so he has to ask the religious leaders, where is the one who is to be born king of the Jews? Where is he born? Where is this birthplace? Where will he be living at this time? And those religious scholars, they go to their ancient scrolls of the books of Moses and the, the prophecies of the Old Testament, and they search through there, and they're probably already not even having to search for it. They are well aware of it, fully cognizant of where the king of the Jews would be born. They say to him in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They take a prophecy given by the prophet Micah, who was a contemporary of Isaiah the prophet, more famous prophet. But Micah, as he's preaching to the people of Israel 700 years earlier, he tells them that God is going to send a new King David, greater than the first King David, greater than all the other kings of ancient Israel. This new ruler is going to come and he is going to deliver Israel and he's going to be, bring peace not only to Israel but to all people. And the religious scholars are well aware of that and if there's going to be a king of the Jews, it, it must be this one talked about in Micah chapter five. And so they quote it to, to the King Herod and to the wise men. And the wise men are so excited that they leave everything and they travel five miles south-southwest of Jerusalem through the hilly countryside and they arrive at Bethlehem and lo and behold, they find Mary and Joseph and the infant Jesus and they worship Jesus and give him the gifts that they've brought. The scholars point out that Bethlehem in the land of Judah is least among the 
the villages and cities. And even though you're the least, even though you're so small, still God is going to do a great thing through you. I think you and I can see that, that that's one of the small things of Christmas, one of the little things of Christmas, that God would use a town called Bethlehem, name means house of bread, to bring forth the bread of life. A town that's called the city of David, the town of David, to bring forth the son of David, the Messiah, to be our savior. God could use something little like Bethlehem to bring about this great ruler. The reason why this is so important for you and me to think about today is because often you and I consider our lives and our situation so small and insignificant. I mean, who me? I'm just the little old pastor at this little old church in Littlestown of all places. And, and who are you? You know, you've got your job and career. And, and who's your family? And, and what are they? And it all seems so small. It all seems so insignificant. I mean, the only people who think you're important is maybe your spouse and your kids, and they might not, okay? You know, what about your job? Well, yeah, your boss is glad you're there because if you're not there, somebody else has to fill in for you, and he doesn't want to have to hassle with that. So, yeah, there's a couple people in your life who think you're important, who think you're special, and maybe there's others. Maybe neighbors and friends consider that as well. But for the most part, we go through life thinking, I'm just a, you know, I'm just a little person living a little old life in little, little Littlestown. Here I am. And it's not just Littlestown. It's Westminster. It's Gettysburg. It's this whole area, the, the, the Hanover Adams area. Hey, we're, just, we're just little people in little places. And we think that what we have with our lives really isn't that important. But God would want you to know it is very important. No matter how insignificant you may think you are. Whatever your skill set, whatever your life experience, wherever you choose to live, Whatever your family is like, whatever you've done with your life, God still wants you to know it's important to Him and valuable to Him as well. Now, some of us, we think about our lives and we think that our lives are unimportant just because we, we're just not that significant. We're just small, small in size, small in wealth, small in number, small in influence. But some of us take it even further and we say, I'm insignificant, not just insignificant, but I'm unwanted because I'm damaged goods. I've done something to my life and I've messed it up. Why would God ever want to use me? I'm a failure. I'm a zero. I'm a loser. I'm a reject. Maybe other people have hurt me. Maybe I was molested or harmed as a child in some way, neglected as a child, and, and I must be nothing. I'm no good. And why would God ever want to use me? Other people treated me so badly. Why would God want to use me? Why would God think I'm valuable? The place where I'm at in my life right now, I've got all this hurt. I've got all this sorrow. These memories that are so painful, this guilt and shame that I'm carrying the mess I've made of my life. Why would God want that? It's not just an insignificant place, but it's a, it's a damaged place. It's a wrecked place. It's a broken place. Why would, why would God ever want to use me? Why do I have any valuable value in his eyes because of these things as well? Bethlehem was like that. 
I mean, Bethlehem is a picture of our lives, I think, the, the situations we find ourselves. Because Bethlehem, it was very insignificant. In the book of Joshua, when it was listing all the cities and towns and villages that the children of Israel, when they took over the promised land and were populating it and, and taking it for their possession, Bethlehem wasn't even listed when there was a census of all the towns that, that were able to muster a group of troops to serve in the army, Bethlehem didn't even have enough soldiers, enough men in the town to be able to have a, a company of soldiers, a troop of soldiers, a clan to go out and serve in the army. They couldn't do that. Bethlehem was a nowhere place. It was insignificant. And on top of that, it was a place of great sadness that, that in Israel's history, when Bethlehem does show up on the pages of Israel's historical story Bethlehem had these great tragedies early on in Israel's history the grandson of Abraham the patriarch Jacob when he's coming back from living far away from home when he's coming back to his homeland the promised land he's got his two wives and two mistresses that he's had children by, these 12 sons of Israel, or excuse me, at that time, 11 sons of Israel. As he's coming back to Israel, his, his favorite wife, Rachel, is pregnant and she's delivering her 12, uh, the 12th son of Jacob, uh, Benjamin. And Rachel, the favorite wife, the beloved wife of Jacob, dies in childbirth. And she's buried there in Bethlehem. And so if you ever mentioned Bethlehem and people would say, oh, you mean Bethlehem and Judah? Isn't that where Rachel's grave is? Yes. Oh. <laughs> That's all they could think about. It's a place where a famous Israelite, mother of Israel, died and was buried. Not a real tourist attraction, I don't think. On top of that, there was another story centuries later. This is, this is horrible. This is absolutely... <laughs> If you ever think that the Bible was written by people that wanted to make the followers of God look good, read the book of Judges in the Old Testament because it is crazy town. It is horrific what's going on. It shows what life when people forget God and live without God and don't have God's chosen king ruling over them, the chaos and anarchy that breaks forth in the nation of Israel. They've been led out of the promised land. They've taken over the pro they've been led out of Egypt into the promised land. They've now settled in the promised land and they've forgotten all about God. And there's this one incident in the book of Judges that talks about a man from Bethlehem who has a mistress and they go traveling and this woman is sexually assaulted by a gang. She's raped and she's killed. It's horrific what's happened. And on top of that, the man from Bethlehem doesn't really do her, her master, her husband, so to speak, does nothing to protect her, just allows her to be violated and killed in that way. And on top of all that, he's so offended that this has happened. You know, he, he takes her body and chops it up and sends it throughout Israel and says, do you think this is a good thing that's happened? You should come and we need to fight against the people that did this. And there was civil war after all that. You say, this is crazy. It sounds like a horror novel. It does. But it was Israel's history. Again, something horrific associated with the town of Bethlehem. Now, of all the places that you would choose to be the focal point of your country's 
future in history. The last place you would choose was Bethlehem. And yet that's exactly where God chose to bring forth the greatest of all of Israel's kings. Because a man named Jesse settled in Bethlehem and he had seven sons and the youngest son was a shepherd boy named David who was chosen by God to be Israel's greatest king. Now David had his flaws. He blew it, failed, committed murder, committed adultery. He did a lot of horrific things himself. But in his heart of hearts, he loved God and followed God and tried to do what was right. And he was called a man after God's own heart. David eventually died. His son Solomon and his grandsons and great-grandsons Great-great-grandsons became kings over the southern kingdom of Judah, the southern part of Israel. And they never measured up to the wisdom and integrity and courage that David had to lead people in following God and doing His will. They always fell short. And David himself fell short. But none of them ever measured up to David for his leadership and competency and skill as a king. The people of Israel, whenever they would think about the future, they would hope for and they would pray for a new King David. And the promise of the prophets was a greater King David was coming. One greater than that first King David. A true man of love and integrity and courage and military skill and might and government who would come and rule over the people of Israel and bring them true lasting peace. David's peace fell apart. It didn't go on for generations. But this new greater David was coming. And his kingdom would have an eternal peace that would be universal in scope. That was the hope and that was the promise that the people of Israel had. And it was all anchored in this little insignificant tragedy-laden village of Bethlehem because that new greater David was coming from Bethlehem as well. And that's what Micah the prophet is saying 700 years before the birth of Christ. He's the one that wrote this passage as the Holy Spirit inspired him to preach these words to the people of Israel. He said that this great new King David would be coming from Bethlehem. And that's the passage that the scholars quote to King Herod and the wise men in Jerusalem 700 years later. I'd like to show you what what Micah wrote and what he preached. And I want to show you that you and I, no matter how dark our situations and how small and insignificant our lives may be, no matter how sorrowful, how how tragic our situations have been, I want you to know that you and I can still have hope. In fact, you can always have hope if Jesus is with you, no matter how hopeless your situation may seem. Maybe you feel like your marriage is hopeless. It is not hopeless. Because Jesus, if he's with you, is able to redeem that, that broken marriage. You may feel like, oh, she'll never change. Oh, he'll never grow up. He'll never, we can be say, it'll never, it'll never get better. They'll never come home. I'll never get that promotion. We'll never have enough money. We'll never get well. But I want you to know that no matter how discouraging your circumstances and your situation, how little and insignificant it seems, there's always hope if Jesus is with you, no matter how hopeless it seems. 
Okay, so I want you to turn to Micah chapter 5, and this is on page 778, 778, if you'd like to use the Bible from the chair in front of you. Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Now, what's very fascinating to me is that in this passage, this sermon that Micah is preaching, he's preaching during a very difficult time in Israel's history. Israel, uh, the southern kingdom, has been invaded by the, the nation of Assyria, the superpower of that time. It's around 700 B.C., and Jerusalem is surrounded by a group of soldiers, a, a, an army of about a 180,000 Assyrian troops. They have surrounded the city of Jerusalem and they're trying to starve the people to death. No water, no food is coming in, no reinforcements, no one can escape. Everybody's trapped and they're trying to crush the people that are trapped there in Jerusalem under their iron grip. They're trying to do that. And Micah's message comes to them and says you can still have hope no matter how hopeless the situation is. And what he's going to show is even if you think you're in the valley, there's still a mountaintop coming. And though you are in that time of great darkness, there's still light. Even though you're in great despair, there's still hope if God is with you, no matter how hopeless your situation may seem. And so I'm actually going to ask you to back up into chapter 4 at verse 9, and I want you to listen to this, and I want you to see if you can see and notice the valleys and the peaks, the valleys and the peaks. And I want you to notice also, I want to point this out to you, especially here in the English Standard Version that we're using at church. Notice verse 9, that paragraph begins with the word now. And then, then in verse 11, that paragraph begins with the word now also, okay, now. And then verse 1 of chapter 5, that paragraph begins with the word now. Hey, how about that? I think those three paragraphs are linked together and important for us to see so look at verse 9, Micah chapter 4, verse 9, page 778. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled. Let, your, let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze and you shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Then would you read verse 2 and following with me, please? But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. 
Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In this passage, do you see as it starts with a now? Right now, your situation is such is that the enemy has surrounded you. Right now, you're ready to go off into captivity. Right now, you're going through suffering. Right now, you're king, verse 1 of chapter 5. Right now, your king is being humiliated, being struck on the cheek with a rod. The one who's supposed to be the judge exercising judgment upon the enemies of Israel. He gets humiliated. He gets judged in the process. This is what the situation is like right now. But even though you're going to be carried off into Babylon, I'm going to rescue you. And even though the enemy is surrounding you, I'm going to make you like an ox and your horns are going to be like bronze and your hooves like iron and you're going to crush the enemy like their grains being uh, grain, stalks of grain being threshed and crushed and ground into flour i'm going to make you victorious and though your king right now is being humiliated chapter 1 of verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 5 a new king is coming a ruler is going to rise out of you bethlehem and he's going to rule as the greater New David in a way that none of your rulers can rule today. You see, there's the discouragement, but the great hope. No matter how hopeless your situation may seem, if Jesus is with you, there's always, always hope. No matter your circumstances, no matter your place. The thing that I find fascinating in this passage as well is that in verse 1 of chapter 5, he's saying that, look, you know, Jerusalem, the capital where all the military might is, where all the wealth, spiritual, religious knowledge in Israel is laid, where the temple of God lies as well, where the king has his throne, right there, this place of power and majesty, it's surrounded. And the very leader of Israel, he himself is going to get judged. He's going to be struck on the cheek. That's exactly what happened to King Hezekiah, who was ruling Judah at that time from Jerusalem, the throne of Jerusalem. Hezekiah had this idea that when the, the Assyrians came and he thought, I'll buy peace. And so he collected all the wealth that he could find and he paid a ransom so that the enemy would leave him be. But you know, when you pay a ransom, they never let you go. They come back. They want more. It's extortion, you know, blackmail in a sense. You know, if you don't give us more, we're really going to destroy you this time. And there's no money left. and There's nothing else that he can do. The king has been utterly humiliated. His foreign policy is a total failure. The military is not able to help in any way. Jerusalem can't even get enough of an army to go out and fight and break through the siege and set the people of Israel free. Israel is so weak, so frail. Jerusalem is such a failure, such a loser at this time. They can't defend themselves. And in this moment of great hopelessness, the word of hope for them is God's big picture. See, Jessica reminded us in her Advent reading that you know, hope requires us to wait. 
If we're truly hoping in God, it means we have to wait for his plan to work out at his time. And we often think that God doesn't care because he doesn't come to the rescue when we want him to. And we fail to remember that we have to wait. And the message to the Israelites that they needed to hope, but that meant they had to wait. But God would come through. And in his time and in his way, he's not just going to get rid of the Assyrians and later the Babylonians that would conquer them. But he's going to send his ruler, the true king, the one who is just like David, but greater and far better. That king is going to come and he's going to bring about a peace that will rule over the entire earth. They will dwell securely and they will live in peace because of this new, greater David that's coming. And so in verse 2, the verse that we're really wanting to focus on today, he says, you know, the power doesn't lie in, in Jerusalem. Success and victory doesn't come from Jerusalem, the capital where the king is and where the priest and the temple are, where the wealth is. No, success is going to come in this little tiny place that's so insignificant that when people do remember it, they remember it as a place of great tragedy and sorrow. Yes, it was David's homeland, but David lived so long ago. People have forgotten about him. We're in this mess right now. We've got this enemy. Here's David's great, 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 great grandson, Hezekiah, sitting on the throne, and he can't defend us. Where's David now? Oh, if we could ever use someone to give us victory, we need him now, but where is he? And so the people, they're just shocked when Micah, when Mal, uh, when Micah would say, remember, it's Bethlehem that God is going to bring the ruler that's going to bring victory. That's the location. That's the source, the origin of this new greater David. He's going to come from Bethlehem. Yes, he's too little, this town is. It's too little among the clans of Judah. Nobody even pays attention to it. But from this little insignificant sorrow, tragedy-laden town, from this place, God is going to bring forth for himself. He's going to bring forth for himself a new ruler. And that's emphatic. It's this king that's coming is not just some uh, political you know, person that's going to just show up and, and exploit an opportunity of weakness in the government to seize power. No, this is God's representative. This is someone that God is sending this king, this greater David is coming for me to do my will. He's coming. He will be a ruler in Israel. And not only that, and this is where we get to understand that it's not just you know, uh, someone who's a great political military leader, but he says his, his uh, ruler in Israel who's coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Literally in the Hebrew, it's the idea that he's eternally existed. He's always been there. And he's coming on the scene. He, he's claiming he's not just a great ruler politically. He's not just a great general militarily. But he's, he's deity in flesh. Born in Bethlehem and coming forth. He's always existed in that way. Now, in verse 3, he's going to say, Therefore, he, God, is going to give them up until the time when she who is in labor gives birth. There's going to be a pause. You're going to still have to wait for God to bring about his victory and send this greater David to come and rescue you and bring you his peace. You're going to have to wait until this woman brings forth her child. 
She who is giving birth relates back to chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, where it talked about the remnant in Israel, like a woman, the daughter of Zion, it's called. She's called. She, she's like a woman that's pregnant and ready to give birth to a child. Only she's not like Rachel who died in childbirth, but she's going to bring forth her child and live. And her child, the Messiah, this greater David, is going to be the one who takes power and puts down all the enemies and brings universal peace. He's going to do that. And so I think that this is clearly a reference to that passage in Isaiah chapter 9 that we often sing about and write about and preach about and talk about and it's on our Christmas cards during the Christmas season. Uh, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and his name shall be called. He's got these four names, do you remember them? He shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. And then that last one, the Prince of Peace. Exactly. That's who's being referred to in in verse 3. She's going to bring forth a son that's going to have all these qualities to be the very best leader and king that there's ever been. And it says that In verse 4, that he, this king that's born of this woman, he will stand, he will assume his post and take responsibility as king. It's like his coronation. He takes responsibility as king. And as king, he has a set of competencies that are so great, character that's so great that he's like a good, gentle, but brave and wise shepherd. In the ancient Near East, the, the culture of ancient Israel, the, 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 the pagan people and the Israelites themselves, whenever they thought about a great ruler, they would say he's like a great shepherd. And he understood that, that they themselves, the people under the king's rule, we're just like sheep and we're, we're lost, we're aimless, we don't know where we're going, we're not protected, we need someone to lead us, someone to provide us, we need a shepherd. And so the emphasis was always on, can we get a king that's like a good shepherd? Someone who would lead us well with character and competency. That's something we're always looking for in our elections, isn't it? We want somebody that has character. We often don't find that. and That's short supply in our world. And we want somebody with competency. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of leaders that have the competency as well. But this greater David, he will have the character of godliness and wisdom and the skill to lead and shepherd people well, to protect them, to provide for them, to resource them, to give everything that they need. He will do that. He will stand and take his responsibility as king and he will shepherd them well. And as a result, and by the way, he will do this, it says in verse four, in the strength of the Lord, not his own power, it's divine power that comes upon him. And not only that, but God gives him his majesty, his authority to lead in this way because he's doing this work for God. And as a result, they, the people of Israel, the people who have gone through all these valleys and all these peaks only to go into the valley again, it says in verse 4 that they will dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. You notice how countries in our world, you know, you can protect the borders, whether you build a wall, have a great army, whatever it is, there's always that constant threat from the outside. 
But here it says that Israel is going to live in peace because everybody's going to be living in peace. And there are no more enemies. There are no more threats. We're all getting along with each other. That's the promise that God has given through Micah the prophet to the people of Israel. Yes, you're under siege right now. You're in great danger right now. And by the way, God did care about them in that situation. There was 180,000 soldiers surrounding Jerusalem and God struck them all dead. And I know that seems absolutely crazy, but he did that. And the people were freed. So God does step into these crises that we experience and he does that in a miraculous way from time to time. But sometimes we just have to wait for him to come through and we have to constantly remember remember that great big plan that he has. That he is sending his greater David. And the promise here in Micah 5 is that they will dwell secure because he will be great. Not they are great, but he will be great because he is such a great king, because he's ruling so well, because he has such authority and majesty and power. He has come to be our king. And because of that, they will dwell secure for now he shall be great to the very ends of the earth. All the earth will surrender to his authority as king of kings and lord of lords. And he, verse 5 First part says, and he shall be their peace. The Prince of Peace at last. The Apostle Paul recognized this when he was writing to the, the Christians that lived in Ephesus a few decades after Christ's death and resurrection. These new Christians, he was trying to encourage them and he was talking about the fact that, you know, before you put your trust in Christ, those of you of a Jewish background and those of you of a Gentile background, you hated each other. You didn't trust each other. You, you fought against each other. You mocked and ridiculed each other. You ignored each other. You did all that. But then you both individually put your trust in Christ and guess what? You became family. <laughs> and you were joined together and there was a wall that divided you and Jesus through his death and resurrection tore that wall down and he brought you together and he bridged it and mended that broken relationship and he is our peace. He's our peace and our relationship with God because our sin had divided us from God. Jesus tore that barrier away through his cross and he gave us peace. And he tears down those walls that divide us racially and ethnically linguistically, culturally, religiously. He tears those walls down. And if you come to Christ, all those barriers are removed. And we become family. Men and women, boys and girls, white and black, old and young, Jew and Gentile. We become family in Christ Jesus. And we truly can get along with each other because Christ is our peace. Those religious scholars, when those wise men showed up in Jerusalem, they said, oh, we know exactly where Jesus, or where the, the son of, you know, the, the king of the Jews is to be born. We know exactly where he's supposed to come from. He's supposed to come from Bethlehem. They probably didn't have to pull the scrolls off the shelf and look it up. They, they knew it in their heads and hearts already where the, the son of David, the, the Messiah, the king of the Jews, the greater David would come from. But the thing I find so tragic about the Christmas story as it relates to Bethlehem and people knowing about Bethlehem was as far as we know, those religious leaders didn't even go looking for him. The one who was born king of the Jews. Oh yeah, it's in Bethlehem. Have a nice journey. 
Maybe they thought themselves too important to take a five-mile walk and get to Bethlehem. It's such a little insignificant town. Maybe they thought themselves too elite. Maybe they thought themselves, oh, we don't need that because we've got our religious empire here and we're in control and we've got our security and wealth and we're in cahoots with the, the king and we get along with him. And, you know, we don't need to go stir anything up by looking for this new greater David who's born in Bethlehem. You go ahead, boys, but not us. We don't need to do it. They ignored it. They didn't, they didn't find any hope in their hopeless situation. But those wise men, they had traveled hundreds of miles to Jerusalem following that star. They've come to Jerusalem and they finally hear the location of the one born, in the king, born king of the Jews, the, the ancient prophecies. And they're filled with hope. They're excited. They believe. They hurry as fast as their caravan can go to Bethlehem, this little insignificant town on the side of a hill. This nowhere place, this place of great sorrow, this place that was just so insignificant, a forgotten backwater town, a place that people raced through on their way to Jerusalem instead of stopping and staying there. They hurried there and they found exactly what they were looking for. The king of the Jews. The greater David. The Messiah. The one who will bring peace to our hearts and peace to our world when we trust in him. And here we are in another period of waiting. We're waiting for Christ to come back. His job's not done. Oh, yes, we believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. There's no doubt, no hesitation about that. But we understand that the one who conquered death through his, conquered death and conquered sin and conquered shame and guilt through his death on the cross and through his resurrection, the job's not totally finished because he's coming back to rule over everything and everyone. And that one who was born in that insignificant, tragedy-laden town of Bethlehem is coming back as the greater king, the greater David, to rule once and for all over everyone and everything and bring about a universal peace in his kingdom. And we look forward to that. My friends, whenever you're discouraged about your situation, when you think your situation is hopeless, remember, your situation always has hope if Jesus is with you. It's not that the circumstances are good. It's not that things are just going to change in and of themselves. Just give it time. No, it's you need Jesus with you. And if you're like a wise man and you go looking for Jesus, you'll see him there in that insignificant place where you're living and where you're suffering and where you're hurting right now and where you feel like nobody cares and God's ignoring you. Jesus is there. And he's working. Will you trust him? Will you put your hope on him? Be willing to wait for him. Are you willing to do that? Because your situation is never hopeless if Jesus is there. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Oh, little's town of little's town. God is working here. 
and he's working in your life as well if you're willing to trust him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I want to thank you just for the great privilege of, of being in your presence, of remembering your goodness to us. And uh, I'm praying that, Father in heaven, that you'd be glorified as we take the, the sorrow and the sadness and the insignificance of our lives, that we would see that they're not insignificant and they're not only defined by sorrow and sadness. But if Jesus is there, and he is, we can have hope. Fill us with your hope, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.